Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Deconstructive Criticism. My name is Aaron Flam. I hope you're doing well wherever in the world you're listening to this. This episode's guest is Dr. Gad Saad and we'll be talking about his new book, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Gad Saad has been a guest before and the links to those talks can be found in the description of this episode on my webpage, aaronflam.com. The parasitic mind is the perfect read if you're looking for arguments backed up with facts and evidence to counter transactivism, feminism, and defense and or apologia of Islamism. So I suggest you buy it and learn it by heart to become an Hafiz in the Madrasa of the Godfather. If you're wondering what court case I and God saw reference in the beginning of our talk, then I am currently being prosecuted in appeals court for previously being acquitted of charges of copyright infringement. This is the first episode in English for quite some time, and since last you heard from me, my own book that I wrote and published has been confiscated by Swedish police, and I am prosecuted for defaming a national symbol, supposedly. I won in the first instance. Hooray! Unfortunately, the prosecutor has appealed, and in a few months I'll be tried in appeals court. I say this before you start to wonder, since the case is briefly referenced, as I said in the beginning of the conversation session between myself and God. I haven't done an episode about it in English yet, and this will not be the one, but if you're curious about the book that has garnered such attention from the authorities, there's an English version, and it's called This is a Swedish Tiger, and it's available as an ebook on Amazon, and can also be ordered as hard copy on my webpage, aronflam.com, aronflam.com. It is about the Swedish culture of silence, and analyzes a Swedish joke from World War II. The joke is, and I quote, a Swedish tiger. I know, and it's not particularly funny in Swedish either. In case that makes you as curious as the state of Sweden, I encourage you to order This is a Swedish Tiger from aronflam.com slash merchandise now. I also want to thank you for supporting my work at patreon.com slash aronflam. That's patreon.com slash aronflam in one word. On Swish, 0046-76894-3737. That's 0046-76894-3737. Thank you for your support. I promise to do more episodes with English speakers as soon as I dare trust my recording abilities. This episode was recorded on Skype with video, but alas, the video feed's quality was too poor for broadcast, so this recording is released in audio only. The sound is excellent, though, and so is my guest. God Saad's The Parasitic Mind is a terrific read. 
Even if you already know a lot of the stuff he's writing about because you've seen him say it before, it is nice to have it all densely and poignantly written down with examples, statistics and facts, ready to be used in the fight against modern political lunacy, which there is so much about these days it's hard to keep up. I agree with Gad Saad on a lot of things, and we touch on similar ills in our respective works, although I think Professor Saad's experience and knowledge in the field of evolutionary psychology and his background in math, computer science, and economics makes him extraordinarily well suited to counter claims from what they in the West call feminism today, what we in Sweden call gender science, and no, I shit you not. Gender studies is a STEM field in Sweden. In the social democracy of Sweden, we believe in equity to such a grotesque degree that we call everything that wants to be called a science, science, just so it doesn't get offended or its feelings hurt. Saad also eloquently disproves ideas found in transactivism and critical race theory. On top of that, having been forced to flee the Lebanese civil war as a child has given him a realistic outlook on the chances of reconciling the tenets of Islam with Western values. God has talked about anti-Semitism and Islam as a guest of deconstructive criticism before, and you will find the link to it and Dr. Saad's YouTube channel as well as book on aaronflam.com. According to his Wikipedia page, Gad Saad is a Lebanese-Canadian evolutionary psychologist and professor in the John Molson School of Business at Concordia University, and his work applies evolutionary psychology to marketing and consumer behavior. Enjoy. Hello, and uh, welcome How back. Um, I'm, uh, I'm good, sir. How are you? Welcome back to Deconstructive Criticism, the great Dr. Gad Saad. <laughs> So nice to be with you. What's going on? How? What's new with you? Well, uh, I'm uh, being sued for the by the state of Sweden apparently for copyright infringement regarding the cover of my book that I released like a little over a year ago. Uh, apart from that, everything is fine. How is Canada doing during uh, under COVID or during COVID? Well, it's very very cold. I know that Sweden is cold too, but today I think it might be around minus fifteen. So I think COVID was really bearable when you could be outside and hang out in your yard and play soccer with your kids but now you really have to cocoon because it's not just covid lockdown it's weather lockdown so it's a it's a double whammy it's tough to take but how are how how is your state handling the pandemic are you satisfied with how canada has handled it so far i mean um, not really in that you know the kind of haphazard nature of not knowing where the edicts are coming from And for what reason makes it a bit, uh, you know, difficult. But hopefully with this vaccine now, we're going to get through. I guess you guys are the ones that were the most laissez-faire, right? Yes, but uh, I don't think it's because uh, Sweden and the social democracy is uh, a freedom-loving place. It's that we weren't prepared. Uh, We haven't had a war for 250 years. And so catastrophes are... uh, not on the agenda ever. So we had nothing to deal with this uh, in place. So, yeah, we're pretty much screwed. That's uh, the general consensus outside of Sweden concerning Sweden. Uh, Anyway. Yeah, wow. uh, And uh, so uh, Justin is not uh, safely guiding your ship to uh, port. (laughs) No, I'm, I wake up every day and I feel secure, at least knowing that the great Justin Trudeau is leading us. So I'm I'm safe in his loving arms. All right. And um, I know one thing you've done since last we spoke, which was a little more than a year ago. Uh, and that is you've released a book, uh, uh, another book in your case, I suppose, um, called uh, The Parasitic Mind. And uh, I've read it now and it's a great read. It, uh, I think it's very succinct and uh, gets to the point and it provides you with uh, all the statistics uh, and tools you need, I think, uh, in, if you're uh, interested in combating uh, PC, at least. So I'd like to start with the question. Uh, could you explain what a nomological network of commu- cumulative evidence is? So the nomological network of cumulative evidence is something that I discussed toward the end of the book. It's uh, in chapter seven where I'm talking about how to seek truth. And so before I actually form 
really explain it. Let me draw a parallel to what Charles Darwin did many years ago. So when he was trying to, let me put on my glasses because I'm squinting. When, when he uh, was trying to amass evidence in support of his theory of evolution, he did it over several decades by collecting data from many distinct lines of evidence, from geology, from paleontology, from animal husbandry, from biodiversity, from ecology, so that when you put all of that data together, coming from, as I said, completely different disciplines and lines of evidence, then it was clear that his theory was vertical. And so I argue for a systematized way of thinking this way. This is, this is called nomological networks of cumulative evidence. So for example, if I want to prove to you that toy preferences are not socially constructed, uh, the fact that little Johnny plays with a blue truck and little Linda plays with a pink doll is not only because of their sexist, arbitrary you know, parents. Uh, how would I go about doing that? Well, I could look at the field of developmental psychology where they study infant psychology. And I could show you that children who are in the pre-socialization stage of their cognitive development, in other words, they're, they're too young to have been socialized, already exhibit those toy preferences. So that already is casting doubt on the idea that toy preferences are socially constructed. But that's just one line of evidence coming from developmental psychology. I could get you data from uh, comparative psychology. This is where you look at other animals. And so you could look at the behavior or the preference, the toy preferences of vervet monkeys and rhesus monkeys and chimpanzees and show that they exhibit the sex-specific toy preferences that are similar to those of infants. So now I've, I've, got, I've gotten you data from developmental psychology and from comparative psychology, but let me do a few more. I won't do the whole network, but I'll give you enough so that your, your listeners can get a sense of how you go about doing this. Well, I can get you data from pediatric endocrinology. So this is so there's a disorder called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which afflicts when it afflicts little girls, their behaviors become masculinized. So little girls who suffer from this endocrinological disorder have toy preferences that are similar to those of boys, suggesting that there's a hormonal signature to those toy preferences. I can get you data from Sweden, by the way. This is one of the one of the boxes in the network comes from Sweden. Now, Sweden is a great example because for many, many years, they have tried to create a gender neutral society. So someone in, I think it was 2005, maybe, had Nelson had collected data from the actual bedrooms of, chil of Swedish children. He had inventoried uh, more than 40,000 toys to determine if they are, you know, sex typed boys or girls. And even in the gender-free country of Sweden, their toy preferences were exactly the same as anywhere else. And I'll just do one more and then I'll, you'll get the idea. You can then take data from other cultures that are completely different from Western cultures, nomadic tribes in sub-Saharan Africa, and show that they do the same. You can get data from ancient Greece where you analyze uh, how children are depicted in funerary monuments. It's the exact same. So I get data cultures, different time periods, different disciplines, different species, all of which point to the same thing. So I didn't have to get hysterical. I didn't have to get emotional. I simply built a network that drowns you in a tsunami of evidence. Well, uh, that is a very controversial topic to apply your method to on. Uh, and when it, regarding uh, gender neutrality, we Swedes believe we're there very soon. Very soon, we just have to sacrifice one more child on the altar of, of of equality, and the gods will smile on us. Or maybe just a few more castrations of Swedish men, and then you could truly have gender neutrality. We don't call them castrations; we call them uh, uh, gender corrections. I think. Uh, but uh, what what if you were to apply this method, uh, which you do in your book? Let's uh, take a, a, a less controversial subject like Islam, for instance. Right, right. The, the, the very non-corrosive topic. So that's actually the, the point that I was trying to make in this chapter, which is that I'm taking this very powerful epistemological tool, which, of course, you can use in building scientific arguments, right, such as 
toy pref you know the sex specificity of toy preferences and so on and then you could apply it to other areas where you're trying to build an argument so if i want to navigate through the dangerous minefield of whether islam is a peaceful religion or not how would i go about building a nomological network of cumulative evidence well i don't have to listen to barack obama tell me that it is a religion of peace or George Bush or Justin Trudeau, I will try to argue, well, what would be the data that I need to amass to either prove that Islam is peaceful or not? So let's do a few content analysis of the actual canonical texts. I could look at the Quran, I could look at the Hadith, I could look at the Seerah, the biography of Muhammad, and I could do a content analysis using formal quantitative techniques to see how often do these texts invoke brotherly love versus genocidal hate of the other. I don't have to guess, I don't have to be emotional. I can quantify exactly, so I can do that. I could add uh, FBI statistics on the most wanted terrorists around the world and see if there is any pattern to detect there. I could look at governmental lists of global terrorist organizations from many different countries from canada from the us from other countries to see if there are any recurring patterns i could look at how minorities fare in countries that are ruled by islam so i could look at global surveys of say jew hatred or homophobia or freedom for women and see if there are any patterns that are you know unveiled when doing such an analysis so through a system collection of data and building this nomological network coming from completely different disciplines and you know uh, frameworks I could then build a you know convincing nomological network I'll, I'll leave it for your listeners to read the book to find out what the final answer is if Islam is peaceful or not uh, yes uh I, I, I can tell you, because I've read the book, and I can tell our listeners uh, that uh, out of 68 terror groups, 55 were Islamic. That is 81%. And I took some time to count through the, the ones that weren't is Islamic and found that 7 out of 13, I think, were socialist. Right. Which is so, more than 50%. Fact, yeah, right, exactly. And yet, in... Uh, in the U.S., we have one of the two parties that is all gung-ho about socialism. So there you go. I guess here the, the mindset is, as you probably know, whenever you try to argue with someone against the, the, the beauty of socialism, they always tell you, well, it's because true socialism has simply not been implemented yet. If only we, we implemented socialism properly, then it would be the perfect place. The, by the way, the exact same reflex happens with Islam uh, in that if you ever show Islamic societies that don't seem to be faring too well on some of our freedom metrics, that's only because true Islam hasn't been implemented. If you did implement true Islam, then freedom and love would reign. Yeah, very early in the book, uh, you say there's a bi-directional relationship between truth and freedom. Uh, what do you mean by that? So what I mean is that you 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 know, to seek truth, you have to have freedom and to, you know, have freedom, you have to be a lover of truth. Th these two coexist. They, you cannot have one with, without the other. So, for example, uh, if I want to pursue truth as an academic, there can't, I have to have the freedom to be able to do so. There can't be something like forbidden knowledge. Forbidden knowledge is now the, the idea that there are certain research questions in academia, for example, that you shouldn't ever broach because they're simply too corrosive. What is the point of you studying this? Well, I am a purist, and so I argue there is nothing that that is outside the bound of honest inquiry, right? So, for example, racial differences, sex differences, those are topics that you truly don't want to touch if you want to have a, you know, a peaceful, uh, successful academic career. Because the argument is always, well, what, what is the ulterior motive of you broaching such a topic? You must be a sexist. You must be a racist. But incidentally, though, there's a small asterisk I have to add here. What's interesting is that if you were to actually conduct that research, it would be perfectly fine for you to present the research as long as the findings came out 
in the politically correct way. If it shows that women are superior to men, then publish that research and you're a hero. If the research shows that uh, men are superior on some task, then you must be a Nazi. <laughs> Because of what you find. Um, so, um, what is epistemological dichotomania? Is that how you yeah, pronounce it? Yeah, epistemological dichotomania is the uh, desire to constantly pit the world into two forces, nature versus nurture, reason versus emotion. And in many cases, I argue, so this is at the start of, the, of chapter two, where I'm trying to explain thinking versus feeling. And I argue that in many cases, this is a, a, a false dichotomy. To succumb to epistemological dichotomania is to really have a very narrow view of how nature works. Because take, for example, nature versus nurture. It's a false dichotomy for the following reasons. So let me give you the, 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 the explanation. If you take a bunch of ingredients that, uh, say for a cake, uh, the flour, the butter, the baking soda, the the sugar the eggs well before you bake the cake they are all clearly delineated once you bake the cake and it becomes an inextricable melange then i tell you please point towards the eggs or the sugar you can't it's an inextricable mix mix so to argue that we should separate what's nature what's nurture is really for most phenomena is silly because Everything is an inextricable melange of these two forces. And as a matter of fact, nurture exists in its form because of nature, not contra nature. So this is why I talk about epistemological dichotomania. It's a way of simplifying the world, but in many cases, it's a false dichotomy. So uh, do you, as an evolutionary psychologist, believe that uh, this... Uh this tendency humans have because it's not only Taoists that divide the world into yin and yang, right? If, if you're an adherent of Hegel, for instance, you would also say there are two polar opposites and they, their interplay creates reality in a way. So do you think this has evolutionary, there's an ev evolutionary explanation for, for this, uh, uh, almost, uh, well, Mindset. pathological need to divide reality into polar opposites. So off the top of my head, I would say it's be, it, the reason why that penchant exists is because it is a way to simplify the world. So if I look at it from the perspective of experimental psychology, if you are conducting an experiment, it's a very nice way to say, okay, there are two possible forces at play. It allows me to simplify the world. Now, in many cases, that's perfectly fine. To simplify the world is a good thing. But in other cases, by simplifying the world, you're, all, you're really missing out a lot of the granular descriptions that are part of the phenomenon. I see. So um, could you, uh, uh, as long as we're talking about this, I'm going through some of the, the idea concepts that you introduce in the book, because uh, I also, in, in the book I just wrote and got sued for, I also uh, discussed the difference between, for instance, what you do, deontological and consequential ethics. Could you explain those concepts? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So deontological ethics would be an absolute statement, statement of what is right. So it is always wrong to lie. That's a deontological statement. A consequentialist statement would be, well, it is okay to lie if it is to preserve someone's feelings. So if someone says, do I look fat in those jeans? You might lie 
because you don't want to hurt their feelings. The reality is for most things, we are both consequentialists and deontological, depending on the context. So it's not as though we should always be deontological minded or always consequentialist minded. The problem is that you sometimes apply the wrong system for the wrong thing. When it comes to the defense of truth, you should always be deontological. You should never sacrifice the truth to preserve someone's hurt feelings. And how can uh, these two different ways of viewing ethics constitute a problem when it comes to formulating, for instance, policy? So how should we navigate through the two systems when we're constructing policy? Well, I could pose the question like this, if you want it more pointed. How is the lunacy of the left a result of consequentialism? Well, because in many cases, what they are trying to maximize objectively is the wrong metric, right? So, for example, if in the university settings, what we now try to maximize or minimize is hurt feelings rather than the pursuit of truth, you are pointing your gun, if you'd like, so to speak, on the wrong objective function. And I talk about this in the book when I talk about uh, what should universities be maximizing. And I use operations research, which is a field of mathematics, where you study how you should optimize or minimize something. Uh, and so the problem oftentimes with uh, leftist policies is that they are trying to maximize or minimize the wrong thing. In academia, the number one thing that I should be maximizing is the unbiased pursuit of truth, unencumbered by feelings and political correctness. And that would be a deontological way of looking at higher education, wouldn't it? Exactly. Uh, but you could also I'm say, I would like to maximize uh, the amount of students who acquire truth, which would be a consequentialist way of still looking for the truth, right? Well, if, if I want to maximize the number of students who pursue the truth, unencumbered by caring about their potentially hurt, fragile feelings, then that would be deontological. The second that I put an asterisk, uh, maximize truth whilst minimizing hurt feeling, once I put the whilst, then we've gone into consequentialist. If I, if I stop it at maximize truth, stop full period, then it's a deontological approach. Hmm. And, uh, and, uh, So how would you say that uh, consequentialism um, relates to the concept of truth? Well, I mean, it, 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 it doesn't directly relate, or at least it, it, it softens it, because it says the pursuit of truth has to be viewed through the calculus of the consequences of that pursuit, right? Whereas if you are an absolute deontological purist when it comes to truth, you just pursue truth. I mean, just watch me. On Twitter, I never modulate my language. I never, not because I'm trying to hurt anybody's feeling, but as a truth purist, I just pursue truth. If it upsets someone, so be it. Um, so, how is making a virtue of having emotions cloud your judgment, both to avoid hurting others' feelings and as a sign of authenticity, relate to consequentialism specifically? Because Oof, that's that, that's a lot of stuff you threw at me there. All right, well, and, and, I, I was trying like, to quote your book in the question. I'm sorry. So let me, let me maybe I can answer it this way. Uh, we're not a thinking animal or a feeling animal. We are both. So this is why when I talk about epistemological dichotomania, it's a wrong dichotomy. The challenge is to trigger the right system at the right time. If I'm driving, if I'm walking down a dark alley because I'm taking a shortcut to get home, and I see three young men loitering. And so it triggers a fear response in me. My heart starts raising. My blood pressure goes up. My cortisol levels go up. That's a perfectly reasonable emotional response to have at that moment. If I'm trying to solve a calculus problem, if I trigger my emotional system, it's not going to serve me much. And so depending on the context, triggering the right system becomes the really important thing to, to pursue. The, the only reason I link it to deontological versus consequentialist is because the consequentialist mindset in the pursuit of truth places your emotions as part of the calculus. Don't tell the truth if, it, if the consequences are that it hurts someone's feelings. So does that, does that make it clear? Do you see how I'm linking the two systems together? Yes, I, I think so. Uh, and uh, since we're talking about feelings and truth, 
um, because you devote an entire chapter to Trump in your book. Uh, I mean, not the entire chapter, but a section in one of the chapters. Yes, yeah. go ahead. Yes. So, um, uh, and and uh, and the book just came out. So, but you're talking about uh, when he got elected, mostly, yeah. and what's happened since then. How do you how do you view the current political situation in the U.S.? You mean in terms of the the actual outcome of the 2020 election? Y- yes. Now they have two yeah. presidents. It's twice as democratic, I think. <laughs> so first, let me mention why I, I talked about Donald Trump in that particular chapter. I did so because what I was. So if you speak to all of my intellectual friends, most of whom are going to be leftist, their position regarding Trump is always rooted in an emotional reaction. He disgusts me. He's vile. He's grotesque. He's right. So. It is strictly their affective system that is triggered. They'll never tell you, I despise him because of his specific foreign policy, because of this fiscal policy. So the reason why I mention the context of Trump in in, in linking thinking versus feeling is that I argue that when it comes to taking positions about which political candidate we should choose, it can't be solely driven by our affective system. So that's why I talked about Trump in that chapter. Uh, When it comes to the current situation, uh, I think it's bad. Uh, I don't, I don't, you know, a lot of people mistake my positions as, you know, as being one who loves Trump or who supports Trump or who, who has posters of Trump in my bedroom. Uh, it's, it's hardly that. I, I mean, I'm Canadian. I don't really have a dog in the fight. It's not as though I'm, I'm going to vote in the American uh, uh, you, you know, elections. But it's because I think that many of the values that I hold dearly, uh, frankly, Trump defends them much better than all of the leftists on the Democratic side. So, uh, so from my perspective, uh, the fact that Joe Biden has been uh, looks like he's going to be reelected uh, is, is certainly not a good thing. What do you see happening then if Joe Biden gets elected? Well, we we go back to the swamp, to use Trump's term. Uh, all of the people that he hires are career politicians who've known nothing other than, you know, being professional politicians. Uh, we see the same sort of leftist policies being implemented. Let's take a specific example. Trump outlawed the uh, imposition of critical race theory to federal employees. Well, that makes perfect sense to me because critical race theory is pure racism masquerading as social justice. Uh, I suspect that Joe Biden is going to completely reinstate it. So we're just going to have a repeat of all of the things that uh, I was hoping to fight in the parasitic mind, which now these idea pathogens will come back uh, even stronger than before. Do you see the Overton window closing again? The which window? Overton window. What's Overton? What do you mean? It's uh, in Swedish we call it the opinion corridor. It's like uh, uh, it defines the axioms of uh, what you can actually discuss in polite society, so to speak. Of course, I so to use that term, then of course I see the cor- cor- corridors closing. Uh, you know, one thing that I loved about Trump is the is his irreverence. He spoke his mind. You knew exactly where he stands on every issue. He was authentic, even though you may not have liked the content of his, his authenticity. He said things that many people felt but were too afraid to say. Now we're going to go back to a nice, diplomatic, warm. Uh, environment of political correctness where everybody is afraid of their shadow, where nobody utters a syllable out of context or out or out of place. Uh, so yeah, I think the corridor is going to close. So, uh, and, and, uh, death by a thousand cuts that you describe in your book is going to continue now. Yeah. So just to explain that, uh, uh, expression. So, what I basically argue is that all of these dreadful idea pathogens, uh, postmodernism, uh, biophobia, fear of using biology to explain human behavior, militant feminism, social constructivism, identity politics, cultural relativism, all of these idea pathogens, every single one of them may not be sufficient to destroy our edifices of reason. But once you put them all together, then you are dying a slow death by a thousand cuts. One cut doesn't kill you, but add up all the cuts and then you bleed out and society dies. That's a bleak uh, outlook, I think, but uh, uh, I couldn't agree more. 
So um, you describe certain uh, non-negotiable elements for a free and modern society, and you basically narrow them down to one, freedom of speech. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and then you go on to discuss polylog polylogism. Yes. Uh, could you explain just uh, quickly what polylogism is? So this basically is an idea that, for example, Marxist polylogism is the idea that there are literally different minds, different ways of thinking as a function of whether you are a member of the proletariat or the bourgeoisie. Uh, racial polylogism would be that black people have a literally different mind than white people or people of another race. So it literally is a form of uh, racism that's grotesque. And now what we are seeing is a reintroduction of some of these ideas, right? Let, let's take it in the epistemological realm, okay? The, so when you said earlier about the non-negotiable elements, I argue that freedom of speech is, the, is a non-negotiable element and the pursuit of truth Right. So, again, it's the truth and freedom is only via the scientific method. There is no other game in town. So, for example, the indigenous way of knowing is not an alternate way of knowing. There is no Lebanese Jewish way of knowing. There is no Swedish way of knowing. There is no indigenous way of knowing. Now, indigenous people might have specific content about the flora and fauna of where they lived for thousands of years. And that's totally okay. That's I agree with that. But if they are adjudicating issues of scientific importance, there isn't an indigenous way of pursuing that scientific question. There's only the scientific, me scientific method. Evolutionary psychology, by the way, is a very non-racist theory in that it actually argues that notwithstanding our cultural and racial differences, we are united in our common humanity. We have a common human nature. So it is contrary to polylogism, which basically says there is a black brain, there is a white brain, and so on. Yes. Uh, and you, you mentioned now that they have started to uh, meld because, for instance, uh, Black Lives Matters, two of its three founders, Alicia Garza and Patrice Collars, they are self-professed trained Marxists. Yes, exactly. But they talk about race. But they talk about it? But they have substituted class with race. Yeah, exactly. Well, so, that's why... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so they're obviously racist, aren't they? A hundred percent. That's why I said earlier that critical race theory, despite the fact that it cloaks itself in the robe of progressive non-racism, is about as racist as you can get. Hmm. Uh, you also talk a bit about apathy in your book, uh, and you're not fond of it. I'm not fond of it because, for several reasons, one of which is because uh, I admire people who are go-getters. I admire people who are irreverent to the orthodoxy. I admire courage. Yesterday, I had a gentleman on my show who was documenting the horrors of ISIS in Mosul while living next to ISIS commanders. That's courage. That's a honey badger. Yes. That's non-apathy. And so what I despise in the West is the, the fact that people are apathetic and cowardly in defending the wonderful societies that we've been able to create in the West. People think that it is a default value that West would exist. It isn't. It's an anomalous thing. If you look at history, we, we didn't have societies that had all of the freedoms that are enshrined in the West. And now we are losing these freedoms because we are apathetic, because we are cowardly. And so this is why in chapter eight of the book, I implore people to activate their inner honey badger. And the reason why I use the honey badger is because the honey badger is an incredibly ferocious animal. It is the size of a small dog. And yet if it is approached by a bunch of adult lions, they will run away intimidated. How could a bunch of lions be afraid of a animal that is the size of a small dog? Well, because it is extraordinarily ferocious and fierce. And so I argue that you have to be an ideological honey badger. What I mean by that, I don't mean ideological in that you are dogmatic, but if you believe in a set of principles, if you can articulate why you believe in those principles, then be, in honey, be a honey badger in defending them. 
Uh, how does the Canadian uh, university system work? Uh, do you have free universities that are market financed, uh, financed by the pupils who attend them, or is it uh, subsidized by the state? So universities, in, unlike the US, we don't really have a distinction between public and private universities. Most of the universities, the great majority of universities, I can't think of too many universities that are not public, state-funded universities. And so that's one of the reasons why tuition is typically much uh, lower uh, in Canada. Although, of course, you are subsidizing that money. It's not free in that you're paying it through your taxes. But uh, yes, so universities in Canada are public. They're state-funded. And uh, Bill C-16 is still in effect, right? Bill C-16 is still in effect, so I can summarize it for you if you want. Uh, back in 2017, both uh, Jordan Peterson and I had appeared in front of the Canadian Senate to uh, discuss Bill C-16, which at the time hadn't yet passed. It was a, a bill that seeks to incorporate uh, gender identity and gender expression under the rubric of hate crimes. And at least my position was that, of course, I support I support transgender Uh, rights. I'm fully socially liberal. But in the pursuit of that uh, defense, we shouldn't be murdering truth. And so I was just warning about the slippery slope consequences of some of the positions. And many of the predictions that I made have proven to be true. Uh, can you exemplify? Well, uh, although this, is, this didn't happen in Canada, J.K. Rowling, the uh, The billionaire author uh, got into trouble because she uh, sarcastically uh, on in a tweet where someone said, you know, people who menstruate. And she said, well, oh, you know, I wonder what those people are called. Oh, wait, they're called women. And then she was attacked by the transgender activist because she was, you know, a, a genocidal transphobe. That's exactly what I was arguing in my Canadian Senate testimony, which is, uh, We don't have to deny biology in the pursuit of the of, of freeing people from bigotry. We can chew gum and walk at the same time. So, uh, Bill 16 in Canada, does it apply to all uh, publicly funded uh, organizations? So, I don't know. I, I would be speaking uh, beyond my level of expertise to know what is the exact uh, legal mechanisms. I mean, the general reality is that you know we are living in a environment in part because of bill c16 but also independently of bill c's bill c16 where people are no longer comfortable in knowing what is permissible to say am i allowed to say that uh six foot four 270 pound men who now self-identify as women and compete in women's sports they hold an unfair advantage Is that something that I can say or am I a, trans, a genocidal transphobe if I say that? So the, the, the specific way by which the, the, the legal apparatus works, you know, is beyond my level of expertise. But I can tell you what is clear is that people are afraid to speak. And that's all you, you need, really, to have an Orwellian reality. You know, uh, the, the attack on freedom of speech doesn't only come from the government, right? Media companies can create an environment where it's difficult to speak. Your own self-censorship becomes a very powerful way to stop you from speaking. So the people who repeatedly say, oh, but that's not the government stopping you from speaking. So it's not a freedom of speech issue. Simply don't get the point. Well, uh, I could, I, I, uh, I hope it doesn't get as bad as it has been here for decades and decades and decades. Uh, uh, but uh, self-censorship is built into the Swedish uh, cultural fabric, I think. Uh, my, my book, incidentally, incidentally about, is about the, the Swedish culture of silence, because uh, we are, as far as I know, the only country in the world who celebrates silence in our national anthem. We call it, <laughs> Oh Joyful, Oh Silent North. Uh, ah, there you go. Yes, I I, I sense your your see, seething anger in your voice. Yes, well, I, I find narcissistic rage is a good force uh, to uh, surf on. Um, so um, you're also talking in your book about uh, judging people or phenomena, uh, ideas, uh, and uh, you say judging is a good thing. Right. So here what I'm talking about is this reflex that people constantly uh, 
you know, succumb to. Who am I to judge others? Don't judge, lest ye be judged. And and I even quote, uh, you know, specific passages from religious doctrines where this reflex might come from. Well, there, in the religious doctrines, it's about moral hypocrisy. Don't judge others until you also take the mirror onto yourself. Like if I'm accusing someone of something, but I'm also doing it, then I am being a moral hypocrite. It's not saying a deontological, don't judge, period, full stop. We are a judging animal. We judge. I belong to the society for judgment and decision making. When I'm choosing between alternatives, I judge which is the best one. So there is nothing deontologically wrong with judging. All that the, the, the religion is saying is don't be a moral hypocrite, which is very different than simply judging others if they are worthy of your judgment. Right. I appreciated that very much, by the way. I think it needs oh, to be said. Uh, concerning Sweden, you know, uh, we have uh, something here called gender mainstreaming. Gender mainstreaming? Yes, it's a political process uh, whereupon all state organizations or publicly funded uh, activities uh, need to be gender mainstreamed. And uh, we're now going to be what I like to call intersectionalized after BLM, of course, which was a huge thing in Sweden, uh, regardless of the fact that we didn't really have African slaves here, uh, nor many Africans. Or people but you're still self-flagellating. What? You, you are still self-flagellating. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, and, and because when you talk about judging, uh, you, you uh, sort of go after Christianity some. Because that's where you say most of this don't judge others unless you be judged comes from, right? Right, uh, yes. And, and you can really see uh, part of the Lutheran heritage in our secular social democratic philosophy here now. Uh, right, I hear you. I mean, I I've joked in the past, but I, I I'm joking, but with 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 a kernel of truth in it. I often state that uh, Sweden is patient zero of ostrich parasitic syndrome, which is something that I discuss in chapter six. And so, I'd like to think that maybe by my appearing on your show, the the global vaccine known as the parasitic mind will really prove useful in your country. No, I hope so too, and also because. I don't have much hope for my country, to tell you the truth. Uh, but I am hoping, because Sweden has been used, it hasn't been used in the last few years, I mean, it's, things have changed, but it has been used for a very long time as a good example for the rest of the socialist movements of the world, regardless of if they're in a position of power or not. Right. Uh, so I'm hoping that Swedes will read it and maybe take it to heart, but... As I said, I, I don't have that much hope for that. It's, uh, but, but, you know, you have to keep fighting. And, uh, well, you have to be optimistic. Otherwise, what's the point of getting out of bed, right? Uh, you're very optimistic. Uh, a narcissistic rage gets me out of bed. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, well, also I, I have this, you know, messiah complex that a lot of small Jewish boys have. Uh, <laughs> so um, I, I appreciate you saying that we're patient zero as well, because I think the rest of the West should take heed from our example and be warned. Because we've been right. doing this for a long time now. And um, now girls in Sweden are apparently better at mathematics than boys in school. Right. Well, I've, I've talked about in the past, uh, there's data that shows that across all races and across all educational levels in the United States, women outnumber men in every single one of the cells. So despite the fact that the data could not be any clearer, we still have a victimhood narrative that we have to help women in the universities. Yes, and I think uh, because we're uh, ahead of the curve, as you say, uh, it's quite clear here now that uh, we've been sort of abusing little boys for a long time, and yeah. to a certain extent girls as well, because yeah. uh, we have climbing suicide rates and depression rates, uh, and, uh, and our uh, young male children cannot read nor write. Right. Uh, well, you know, I've had a case where once my young son told me because we were watching something where it was really quite grotesque how they were pathologizing masculinity. And he said, Daddy, are boys bad or something to that effect? And it broke my heart because here was this little boy who was asking a, you know, an, a question that really captured fully the current zeitgeist 
of pathologizing half of humanity in a sexually reproducing species. That's never a good thing to do. I guess not. Uh, so um, I don't really know where to go from here. I had so many questions. Uh, but well, we, you'll, have, you'll, have, you'll have me back at some point, or I'll have you back on my show. Uh, <laughs> or not back I, on my show. I've never had you on my show. I'll have to invite you on my show. Uh, well, I think I... Uh, no, maybe, well, maybe it was my, it's much. been my show twice, hasn't it? I'm, I can't remember if it's twice on your show, once on mine, or twice on your show and zero on mine. But if it's zero, we'll try to correct it. Well, I'm going to send you a copy of my book regardless, uh, because uh, it deals with a lot of the same concepts that you touch on in your book. Okay. Um, okay. Because, you know, uh, we've had a very large influx of uh, immigrants from uh, Africa and the Middle East in Sweden for a very long time. And right. uh, that has affected things. The gender mainstreaming in school has also affected things. Uh, I mean, you talked about it extensively yourself. We have uh, the world's first feminist army, for instance, and the world's yes. first feminist foreign policy. And also, you, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the James Lindsay and, and his gang, they sent in uh, four papers to academic journals uh, on the... 20 papers. Yes, but one of them... Uh, was about uh, dog yards, weren't they? W wasn't it? Yes, right. Yes, uh, do dog rape, uh, uh, rape at dog parks. Yes, uh, uh, and uh, the funny thing is that if you Google uh, a woman, a Swedish woman actually raised that concern way before they uh, they did that as a joke. <laughs> she uh, she went out, you know, publicly in Sweden and said, "We have a problem with the dog parts. They should be uh, separated into female dogs and male dogs because male dogs cannot behave." <laughs> so Sweden ahead again is ahead of the curve. Yes, I think we are. And I'd love uh, to come on your show, sir. And uh, I want to thank you once again for taking your time uh, and uh, you. appearing here on, on Deconstructive Criticism. Always a pleasure to see you, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Deconstructive Criticism. And thank you to Dr. Gad Saad for talking to us. You can buy his book, The Parasitic Mind, on Amazon and subscribe to his YouTube channel on YouTube. You can find links to both in the description of this episode on my webpage, aaronflam.com, a link to which you'll find in the description of this episode, regardless what platform you're listening on. On aaronflam.com slash merchandise, you'll also find my book, This is a Swedish Tiger, which is the reason behind my current legal problems. There is a version in English called This is a Swedish Tiger, and it's also available as an ebook on Amazon. But it's much nicer to own a paper copy, so please order yours today at aaronflam.com. And This is a Swedish Tiger is about the Swedish culture of silence and analyzes a Swedish joke from World War II. And that joke is, and I quote, a Swedish tiger. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting Deconstructive Criticism at patreon.com slash Aaron Flam. That's patreon.com slash Aaron Flam. Or on Swish, 0046 7689437337 that's 0046 7689437337 thank you for your support i am aaron flam until next time please take care of yourself even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.